0: Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon leday
1: And I am Boomer.
0: And this is normally where I would say we were recording across state lines, but this week we're recording between two tropical storms, one becoming a hurricane very quickly that's tearing up the coast uh, between us. Luckily, New Orleans was spared. You are in Austin. You were just telling me you're pretty far inland where that's not a problem for you either.
1: Yeah, essentially, as it has been explained to me, like I was saying, hurricanes do not hit Austin because they have to travel across 160 miles of dry land. They are tropical storms by the time they get here. They have been known to cause some flooding. But right now, things don't look terrible for me at present. But thank you. (laughs) for asking
0: no that's good i mean we get uh a lot of flooding here lately just on a bad rainstorm so i was very happy that it tracked a little west even though that's bad news for other people it was a stressful weekend of preparation and then it ended up being not much of anything for here which i'm glad about yeah. and i'm also saying that a little early because the second one hasn't hit us yet
1: yeah there's there's still plenty of time
0: still time for excitement uh, <laughs> well um last time we talked I had asked you if you had seen any movies recently, and you said, no, none, just TV. Yeah. So I have to ask you again, have you been watching movies lately? Yes, I have seen some things. I have some things to talk
1: about. Um, First, I saw The Family Ties Vacation, which was a TV (laughs) movie about (laughs) the characters from Family Ties going on a European vacation it's quite possibly the worst thing that I have ever seen because I'm not exactly a Family Ties fan. I know that people who just read the site or listen to these podcasts probably think that I'm much older than I am. You know, when we had that discussion about fried green tomatoes, I mentioned that I have a dream match game cast, um, which (laughs) is a game show that went off the air like a decade before I was born.
0: Is Charles Nelson Riley in your crew?
1: Uh, yes. Oh, good. Charles Nelson Riley. But for me, it's always going to have Fanny Flag.
0: Oh yeah, that's right.
1: And I actually happened to catch an episode today on Buzzer that had William Shatner. Uh, and he was being booed a lot and rightfully so.
0: <laughs>
1: but uh, Family Ties was not a show that I grew up watching even in syndication or on TV land. It was kind of too recent for TV land or, um, Nick at night whenever I was a kid that sort of programming block exists on a 20 year floating schedule. So when I was a kid in the nineties, it was all stuff from the seventies like Mary Tyler Moore and welcome back Cotter. And those were the things that I would watch with my parents or my grandmother whenever we happened to be like at a hotel that had cable or my grandmother had cable. Right. And then It wasn't until like the early 2000s when I was not watching as much television during the day or at night that they started showing stuff from the 80s, like uh, Silver Spoons and Family Ties. But if you're unfamiliar, the plot of Family Ties is essentially that these ex-hippies have three kids. There's very ditzy Justine Bateman. There's super conservative Michael J. Fox and um, a third one. And... The plot of Family Ties Vacation is that they go to England so that Michael J. Fox, as Alex P. Keaton, which we all know from the immortal LFO verse, explaining
0: that. I actually know that from a Kimmy Dawson verse. What a time to be Coming alive. Coming from a different angle, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, he's, he's going to Oxford for like a summer program or something, and it's shot... I wouldn't say cinematically, but, you know, Family Ties is a standard living room on the left, kitchen on the right, set, to one to two camera sitcom. I'll be honest, I don't actually know what the difference is between a one camera sitcom and a two camera sitcom, <laughs> but it's a sitcom with a laugh track and with jokes. And to watch them, these characters be filmed in a more dynamic film-like way as they explore Europe, while also... Reciting very pithy one liners without a backing laugh track was one of Ooh. the most disorienting experiences that I have ever had. So, Family Ties Vacation, I saw it. It's terrible. I don't recommend it.
0: I feel like that's a whole genre of TV movies, too. Like, I'm thinking of a Saved by the Bell movie where they went to Hawaii.
1: Oh, yeah, for the wedding.
0: Yeah. There's also that um Sabrina the Teenage Witch one where she basically remakes Roman Holiday. Oh, I'm not familiar with that. But <laughs> I wouldn't uh recommend seeking it out. But uh I feel like, you know, they make those where it's like, well, we have to do a big episode as a special. And they probably all aired straight to TV without any kind of other distribution, I would think.
1: Yeah, it was really common in the nineties for ABC sitcoms because they had just been acquired by like the Disney conglomerate that Roseanne Went to Disneyland and, you know, step by step family went to Disneyland, I uh, assume. But it's strange that apparently Family Ties Vacation came out the same year as National Lampoon's European Vacation. And there are some story <laughs> beats that are pretty similar, but just take my word for it. Don't seek it out to, you know, get evidence of that for yourself. As far as better things that I watched, I also watched Lady in a Cage yes oh you've seen it
0: we recently did a podcast episode called elevator horror and uh that was the one we started with it's like the movie of the minute
1: well great uh it's <laughs> well then you know all about it it's currently on cbs all access which i signed back up for because there's new star trek and i watched that recently with my my friend who was here uh, i thought olivia de Havilland was great in it it fits right into my beloved genre of women in crisis or women on the verge Women on the edge. Lovely to see Olivia De Havilland, young James Caan, and Scatman Crothers. <laughs> uh, it's like, oh wow, okay, well, good to see you, Scatman. Glad glad right. you're here. But as someone who has also been trapped in their home by a leg injury before, it spoke to me on a spiritual level. What did? I, I guess it's probably been a minute since you saw it, but what were your thoughts?
0: Actually, we re- we did a podcast episode this summer, like maybe a couple months ago. I remember thinking it was very like stylish, even though it's like a trashy Hitchcock ripoff. <laughs> yeah, it plays to the, sh- the visual strengths of that like motif, I guess. And then also just, I was taken aback by just how mean it is. Like, oh, it's so Every mean. character is so cruel and so sweaty. Like it's such <laughs> an ugly portrait of like Americana. That's what stuck with me the most.
1: It has such a strong opening where that little girl is just rolling her roller skate back and forth across like the shin bone of maybe a corpse while the radio goes on and on about like the depravity of society and how society is falling <laughs> apart, which is such like a 1960s. Pearl clutching, post McCarthyism, rise of like the free love movement, period piece. You know, it <laughs> it really dates itself. But I loved the person on the radio, the preacher or what have you, who was going on about how, you know, we've split the atom and you know, is there a vaccine against the devil? Is there a bomb <laughs> to stop sin? And it's just like, you know. God, we are perpetually trapped in a world in which people of faith are taken advantage of and taught to mistrust and fear science, which is another topic that I think we're going to circle back around on today. I have thoughts. I have theses; They are numbered. We're going to talk about Jonathan Gottschall. We're going to talk about Carl Sagan. I have a lot to say about Housebound and how it fits into my uh, belief system.
0: Well, uh, before we move on to, I want to um, mention that Olivia De Havilland's one uh, line read should be like a drag staple. I think when she's like, "I am trapped in a small <laughs> private <laughs> elevator," like the way she eats that line is so good.
1: Oh, that moment where she's she's made those shivs and she tries to <laughs> stab James Caan <laughs> completely uselessly. It's like, oh. Oh, wow. We really are. You poor woman.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think I described it as a psycho bitty origin story, too, where, like, she starts off the movie just like any conservative Christian woman. uh, And then by the end, she's just as mean and cruel as everybody else. You know, she, like, falls apart.
1: It has a very Alfred Hitchcock presents opening. Yeah. After you get through the very stylish part with the roller skates and the, like, sin on the radio. Once you get into her house, it's very much like an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. It feels very stagey at first until her son
0: leaves. It's trashed your theater. Yeah.
1: Rest in peace. You know, she just, just died.
0: Yeah. She was
1: 104 years old.
0: I think we did that episode like oh my God. a couple weeks before she died. And I think Amy Sedaris did a episode length parody of the film on her own show. Mm-hmm like, a few weeks before she died, too.
1: My friend that I watched the movie with sent me that clip. Uh, and we were just like, <laughs> what? How is this coming out just now, right after we had seen it? I guess it's a lady in a cage, assance.
0: Well, for my part, I have been back on my bullshit, and I've been watching a lot of vintage pornography again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I started with a classy one. I was watching this... Criterion canonized film called In the Realm of the Senses from 1976. It's a Japanese picture. And it's based on a real story. It's about this like lady who's taken on as like a maid at this like hotel type business in Japan. I think it's like early 20th century. And she immediately falls in lust with the owner of the place. And the two of them start the sexual affair everyone knows about it, even the wife and it's kind of permitted, but they give into it so wholeheartedly that it just consumes their lives. All they want to do from the moment they wake up till when they go to sleep is fuck. And like he falls asleep and she continues playing with his penis and he like, it's like waking up and she's still doing it. She won't let him go to the bathroom. It's like, it takes too much time. She wants to fuck again immediately. And it becomes this like mania where they're like obsessed with each other. And, The ending is the same thing that happened in real life. I guess I can spoil it. They get kinkier and kinkier, and this involves breath play, and she, like, chokes him to death while riding him, and then cuts off his dick and takes it with her because, you know, he's no longer useful. He's dead, but she's still obsessed with his penis, so she, like, takes it with her on her, like, final tour as a free woman. It is a very graphic movie, especially for a Japanese film because it is unsimulated sex and it's uncensored which would not be allowed under japanese laws so they had to have it like shipped to paris to be processed and it's been like it was like seized from all these different festivals across the globe and just the thing about it is like it's technically kind of porn like there's a lot of unsimulated sex and most of the movie is sex but it's also this really beautiful costume drama about these like mutually obsessed people who like can't help themselves and it becomes this like almost thriller where like their sexual appetite for each other is just like all-consuming and I don't know I was just really taken aback by like how brave it was to exist in the first place I think for like a lot of 70s porn in particular only existed because people were angry at censorship laws like you know it's like oh you're gonna tell me I can't do that well I'm gonna do the fuck out of it and wave it in your face and take <laughs> that reminds me of um... win, you know
1: the The woman who wrote Troll 2, Rosella Drudy, the interview where they ask her, like, where did you get the idea to make the trolls vegetarians? She's just like, a lot of my friends were becoming vegetarians and it pissed me off.
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's like a defiant anger to a lot of that stuff. It's just amazing that it exists. It's amazing that it's been canonized in a way where it's like seen as art. The sex is frequent, but it's not very, like, performative or acrobatic in a way that a lot of porn is. Like, it's not for your pleasure as much as it is for the people doing it. So it's, like, really intimate in an unexpected way. Yeah. If you're interested in, like, the blurred line between art and pornography in the realm of the senses, I think fulfills that, interestingly. All right. I also watched one called Bat Pussy, (laughs) also from the 70s.
1: I'm in already. Tell me everything.
0: It is trash. It is... Considered to be the first porno parody ever made because it was released in the early 70s. It's parodying the Adam West era Batman TV series. And no one knows who made it, where it was made, or how it was distributed. It was found in a basement of a Memphis porno theater, I believe in the 90s, and has seen a couple home distribution releases since then. And it is just an incomprehensible mess. Like not only has it earned like the first porno parody film title, but it's also earned the title of the worst porno ever made. Like it's got kind of an Ed Wood quality to it. Okay, Bat Pussy is basically just a Batwoman surrogate character. She doesn't appear for the first like third of the film. You mostly watch this like very normal Southern couple, like aggressively... Uninteresting people roll around in bed, kind of going down on each other, but not doing a good job of it. And Improving, they keep just calling each other motherfucker and sound a little drunk and like <laughs> angry. You know, like when bad improv doesn't know where to go, it always goes like loud and angry. Like that's just yeah. Choice. I
1: mean, even good improv gets because there sometimes.
0: True. True. I'm just
1: kidding. There isn't. There's no such thing. Sorry. Go on.
0: Brutal. Brutal. Uh, <laughs> Well, they improv their way through this porno and they look scared every now and then. Like, they run out of things to say and they look off camera and they get direction live while in bed. And it feels like this, like, audience filmmaker violation. Like, don't bring the director off screen into this who's, like, shouting prompts back to them um, <laughs> during the film. It's so fucking weird. And then uh, Bat Pussy gets this, like supernatural sense that people are making a porno in her town and she says not in my gotham city and she bounces over to the bedroom set that we've been stuck on forever on this like bouncy ball um that's how she travels and then she arrives there to break it up but immediately just strips and joins the action and then the bad improv starts again and then it just abruptly ends after like an hour huh i don't think it's good in any way it's fabulously inept though I just wanted to uh, point out that in the realm of the senses is this, like, high art version of porno. And then there's also this, like, just anybody can make this stuff kind of quality to it. And because it is sex on camera, kind of the same way that, like, horror films have, like, a built-in payoff, you can still get your films distributed. Right. I don't know. I just find that kind of fascinating. Like, it's so amateur to the point where it's not even edited together really like the director is live giving them action to do from off screen and like the male actor the only male actor of the three keeps calling her Batwoman during like the climactic three-way and it's live in dialogue where like after he says it a few times the other actors like correct him like no it's bat pussy and he's like oh <laughs> yeah and they all start laughing about it
1: wow okay
0: and this movie played on a on a big screen with an audience at some point, which I find fascinating.
1: I'm gonna be honest. While I was I've been trying to shop around one of my projects, it's been very disheartening to like be trapped in quarantine and, and watch some things that have ended up being distributed from the past where I was like, God, I'm working so hard. It doesn't seem like these people had to work hard at all. So I get it. It's very much like, <laughs> wow, some some people just just falls into their laps. Sometimes, literally,
0: <laughs>
1: like bat pussy.
0: Well, maybe you need to aim lower. You need to aim to get your film the show once in a Memphis porno theater and then be lost in a box yeah. for twenty years.
1: I need to stop trying to sell my idea to Netflix and sell it to Quibi. Oh yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> Not to cut your dreams down in a ten-minute quick bites, but
1: <laughs> oh, and vertically filmed too. You know, sick. the the way of the future. Uh, sacrilegious.
0: Hey, I don't know if you care, but the doctor said, you know, I ain't gonna make it much longer. You know what I mean? Uh you know. Oh, oh, boy, I got to do I got you tonight. tonight. Tonight, tonight, tonight. Hey, what did you say your name? Uh uh, Eugene
1: what are you doing now just getting a baseline reading for the data loggers
0: what are they supposed to log
1: fluctuations in room temperature ghosts have a lower body temperature than humans Day day. all right so uh today tonight because you know the earth rotates it's technically night now where we both are despite <laughs> us being divided by state lines and hurricanes tonight We are talking about the 2014 New Zealand comedy horror thriller, Housebound. So forewarning for everyone listening, we are going to spoil the hell out of both Housebound and the 2016 film, The Boy, which I actually enjoyed. It had a sequel that came out this year. Both of them have a twist that's almost the same twist. And we're going to talk about it because that's one of the things that I like most about Housebound. So forewarned is forearmed. If you were really holding off on learning about the Brahms lore, you know, maybe skip this one until you've seen it.
0: Also a twist that you will see in the House on Sorority Row and Bad Ronald. From yes, the 70s. Bad Ronald is a classic. Apparently making a comeback. Have you seen the House on Sorority Row? I don't think that i have well i'm sorry i just spoiled it just by associating it with these movies which it's hard to talk about any of them because even just comparing them is like an instant spoiler for all of them
1: yeah so i guess we'll just divulge what that spoiler is which is that there is nothing supernatural afoot there's someone living in the walls but i guess i i did still put the cart before the horse housebound (laughs) (laughs) housebound is A film that's about a young woman named Kylie who is placed under the supervision of her mother and her stepfather after several rehabilitation attempts have failed. Uh, She moves back home to her childhood home that she left as early as she could. Her mother, Miriam, is a bit of a kook and she believes that the house is haunted. And the longer that Kylie is at home, the more she becomes convinced that this might actually be true. Uh, you had seen this movie before. I had seen this movie before. Was this your second, third viewing, or what?
0: James reviewed this early in our website days. We started reviewing movies in 2015. And I want to say, James only wrote reviews for us for the first few months of that. And. I watched it because he reviewed it and and liked it. And I had not revisited it since 2015. At the time, it felt like a total anomaly. I had never seen anything before that was quite like it. And then in the five years since, I feel like there's this whole palette of like New Zealand horror comedies that this fits in. Like that Taika Waititi style or the producer of this movie, Ant Timpson, also did Turbo Kid and he did... Most recently, come to daddy. Like, he's got a whole, like, kind of genre film niche, I think, that this movie fits in that I didn't really recognize five years ago. So I'm seeing it for the second time, but I feel like with an entirely new appreciation for where it fits, you know, in the genre spectrum.
1: Well, I also would like to point out that probably the first time you saw this, and the first time I saw this, definitely, we were not under quarantine.
0: Um,
1: (laughs) However, now we are. And it does feel like a film made to fit this moment in a lot of ways, uh, especially with Kylie being completely kept to her own house with her family. You're not really sure for the longest time whether she's just starting to have a full on Charlotte Perkins Gilman yellow wallpaper freak out from having to be in this, like, somewhat dilapidated, sprawling for the, like, apparent economic class of her mother and stepfather a house that just seems to be full of i'd say full of life but really just seems to be full of death
0: yeah and i feel like what really was funny on this rewatch because all i really remembered was the twist but like watching it with those covid lenses on like the mom's microaggressions and like how much like a family member that you're stuck alone with can drive you insane was oh, really funny yeah. in this context like her saying like the Maori woman was well spoken and educated that like racist tinge and you see like the little twitch in her face listening to her mom say these things yeah it was very funny uh just with current context
1: this is also a film that's largely devoid of police and most of the policing that is performed is done by a member of the community not an officer of the law as we can see them in the US which I thought was really interesting uh, in the U S Kylie would have been in jail a long time ago, but she's been in multiple civilian citizen rehabilitation facilities and they don't seem to be working. And so they're like, i house arrest. It is go live with your sweet doddering, but also kind of a little bit racist mom and your largely silent stepfather. <laughs> That also feels strangely prescient for a film that's, you know, six years old at this point.
0: Yeah, there's like a whole community of rehab with her where, like, there's counselors and, you know, there's like it's not just the police doing the job of, like, five different departments. Like, there's a bunch of people kind of pitching in to help her, like, get back on her feet.
1: Yeah. And although it's played as a joke, the moment that there seems to be something creepy going on, Amos, the sort of security guard who oversees her house arrest ankle monitor, you know, you think for a moment that he's going to be disbelieving, but no, he's fully on board. He is ready to hunt some ghosts from the moment that he's like, Oh, is that a cold space? I I found that pretty amusing. And I find just that exploration of the comedy of the inept, not police officer, but like security officer (laughs) and his like constant attention. Uh, And the way that he's, you know, every time that Kylie does think about trying to get away, he's always like, you know, you can't get far. I'm right here. I'm just going to take you home. Found him uh, oddly comforting, despite his clear, irrational ideologies about ghosts.
0: They're very solid, though. Like, he has rules about how, like, you can't punch ectoplasm or, like, ghosts have (laughs) a lower body temperature. Like, he's very sure (laughs) about it.
1: Yeah. his, His interactions with Kylie, who has a very clear understanding of what she would do if she encountered a ghost, which is fight it, (laughs) (laughs) is in complete disbelief about Amos's very specific, very Zach Baggins ghost hunting rules. The thing that I love about Housebound, or one of the things that I love about Housebound, which made me enjoy The Boy, which is not uh, an objectively good movie.
0: Can I just set the record straight on The Boy real quick? We all loved it so much that it was number four on Swamp favorite movies of that year because of you and me and Brittany, <laughs> which is really? insane in retrospect.
1: Yeah. It's not good. I love it's it. It's not a good movie, <laughs> but I think that you and I are diametrically opposed about this. Cause I mentioned wanting to talk to you about this. I prefer a horror movie. And I say, I prefer now a few years ago, I would say, I just wish I could see a horror movie that prioritizes rational skepticism over the belief in the supernatural or some sort of irrational, unscientific supernatural explanation for events. And you don't feel that way.
0: I feel like so hard in the opposite direction. Like there are a lot of things to like about horror movies. Like the fact that you can talk about, all kinds of social ills through like metaphor. I feel like is one of the reasons that a lot of people are drawn to it. Personally, I love that stuff too. But what I really love is how over the top and surreal and subliminal horror movies can be where they're not constrained by the rules of logic, the way most films are. So like whenever I see a movie pull back from that and explain those dream logic impulses with like a real world explanation, I really bristle at it. Mm. But I don't think that this movie is an example of it done wrong. Like I I really like the explanation here because the reveal of who is in the walls and his own behavior and why he's there and all that is so unbelievable and such a like break in reality in (sighs) itself. Like I love Eugene so much that I'll allow it, I guess is what I'm saying.
1: All right. I guess my point of view is I really just like horror that could happen. Like I'm with you on the validity of horror as an exploratory device for social issues and concerns. That's one of my favorite things about it. I guess just to go back to, for example, The Exorcist, a modern viewer who's never seen The Exorcist before is probably going to be bored with it for a pretty long time because the film spends a pretty decent chunk of its like, first and first half of its second act just establishing that what is happening to Reagan has no rational explanation, which is how supposedly real exorcisms are performed, where they do a lot of work making sure that It's not just a matter of the person having some sort of psychological illness or psychological break or neurological problem. There's really only one franchise in the West that prioritizes skepticism and rationality over irrationality. Scooby-Doo. The Scooby-Doo franchise, other than, you know, the occasional outliers, like when werewolf Shaggy races the kids from the ghoul school or like Vincent price lets out 13 ghosts for the most part the adventures of the various forms of the mystery machine gang they investigate what appears to be some sort of supernatural event you know a ghost pirate or a ghost theater person or a ghost carnival barker mostly ghosts haunting some place and then they get there and it turns out to be an old white man who wants land which Scooby-Doo really reinforces the reality of the world, which is that there are no ghosts and most evil in the world is done by old white men who want property.
0: It turns out the real monster was capitalism all along.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Capitalism was the real friend that we made along the
0: way. I guess my my favorite version of that is like capitalism is the monster. And also there's a monster like, (laughs) like that, like extra layer of like, it yeah. doing that legwork and there being like a break in reality. But I, I get that, you know, there's so much of that, that like whenever you can't explain a rational version of the story and still play with horror tropes, that can feel like its own special treat, you know, because you don't see that as often.
1: Yeah. I love horror movies that have no rational explanation as well. I mean, the first thing that we talked about when we started doing these Landyap episodes was Death Spa, which we both love. I am a big fan of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. But like I also love Scream. But I don't think that Scream, for instance, falls into that same category of like a rational horror film, even though everything that happens in it is theoretically something that could happen in reality. I guess for me, and I guess I'll just go ahead and dive right in. Okay, thesis the first. (laughs) We live in what Carl Sagan deemed... A Demon Haunted World, which was the title of his 1995 or 6 book that was intended to promote scientific literacy in the masses by kind of decrypting the removed from the layperson's vocabulary language of science into something that was more populist. Like you and I and everyone listening are, as human beings, existing in a rational world where knowledge progresses through the exploration of existence through empirical investigation looking for demonstrable measurable repeatable results and from that we draw conclusions about the nature of existence from a strictly cold rational viewpoint we do not live in a world where freddy krueger is killing teenagers in their dreams or a child could live at the bottom of the lake from one Friday the 13th to the next and come back and, and chop people up. But we also live in a society that's sorely lacking in skepticism. Um, most people live their lives in irrational patterns of superstition and magical thinking, and whether that can be in the form of like prioritizing certain tenets of faith in a literal way over reality as it can be measured, rather than maybe reconceptualizing the tenets of a faith in a more metaphorical or spiritual way since the faith and the real world aren't supposed to coexist ne- necessarily in theory anyway you know people like attribute changes in their moods and changes in their relationships and like fluctuations in their work performance to the movement of astronomical bodies across the heavens instead of neurochemical changes or miscommunications that lead different people in different positions to have certain perceptions of another person's behavior or ideologies Or, you know, the way that even just changing your eating habits and your dietary and nutrition changes affect your body chemistry and change your mood. You know, something like the Bader-Meinhof effect, which is uh, also known as the frequency illusion, which is, you know, itself the psychological phenomenon in which you learn about something and then suddenly you start to see examples of it everywhere. They become like mysticized in a way that's not necessarily healthy or good because, we are living in an age of pseudoscience when carl sagan wrote demon haunted world in the 90s he was talking about a potential future in which pseudoscience replaces science in the public consciousness especially as it is potentially spread through mass communication means and what that term means demon haunted world doesn't mean that we live in a world that has literal demons in it it's that so many people live their lives based on what is purely mystical and irrational. Thesis the second, in his book, The Storytelling Animal, Jonathan Gottschall talks about how human beings are essentially wired for story. And this is something that Michelle Susayama, the evolutionary literary theorist, uh, explored sometime before that. Jonathan Gottschall's Storytelling animal is kind of like the demon haunted world of literary theory, where it's like kind of doesn't talk down to you but speaks to the layperson in a language that they understand. And it basically explores the idea that human beings' minds, there's just some information that's better to learn secondhand, like what snakes are venomous and what berries are toxic and whether or not this is a river that can be forded. You want to learn that information secondhand, not firsthand by drowning, dying, being poisoned, or being bitten. And our minds evolved in a way to contextualize and intake information through our storytelling. That's why the oldest recorded pieces of literature that we have are mostly religious texts that frequently have some kind of mnemonic device whether it be a repetition of some sort of "I am," or through uh, rhyming in the original dialect or language, you know, Beowulf breaks down in the middle of it and provides like a soup recipe. Like this is something that we know just based on our study of extant texts from prehistoric, pre-modern eras. As soon as we started telling stories to ourselves, that's when we started to expand as a species. We, it allowed us to transmit information through our fiction. Uh, and in fact, Thesis the III, Scientific American, <laughs> published an article back in October of 2013 that found basically reading literary fiction improved empathy on the part of children. Uh, in comparison to reading nonfiction or even genre fiction. So literary fiction, because of its characters having dynamic internal lives, exposed children to how other people might feel, and then they tested them. And the empathy scores for kids who read nonfiction, basically zero change, genre fiction, basically zero change, Literary fiction, you know, with its changes to the internalization of the character, found like a significant uh, increase in the ability for children to empathize with others. So right now, we live in a world where people are really bending over backwards to defend the police. And it's not a coincidence that this time that we are living in is also coming after 30 years of law and order you know as a franchise and its various not necessarily spin-offs but things that sort of take their inspiration from law and order in which we consistently see our heroes who are police officers come out on top through the frequent overstepping of the civil liberties of citizens and civilians, where you know Mariska Hargitay turns to Chris Maloney and she like fake sniffs the air and she's like, "Does that smell like a drug lab to you?" Blah blah blah. They bust down the door and of course they catch the criminal in the act, and they've made up a reason for them to break through this door. Unlike what really happens, which is you know a no knock warrant might result in a woman being shot to death by the police who are not held accountable. That's a real thing that happens. And I think that our fiction, when it comes to horror, which is one of the most widely viewed and consumed genres, the fact that it consistently and almost universally prioritizes an irrational view of the universe over a rational view is not necessarily removed from the fact that When you and I were kids, we were cloning sheep and putting people on the moon and people were very interested in conservation as far as like Earth Day and planting trees, like even people who were conservative considered it good stewardship of the environment to be more proactive in conservation efforts. Now we live in a world where a surprisingly large contingent of people unironically believe that the earth is flat. And I don't think that horror movies universally having irrational explanations for their events is solely to blame for that. But what I would like to see is more of a balance as far as its effect on the societal level, as well as just like, this is such a great twist that you think you're going to find out it's going to be a poltergeist. It's just another poltergeist movie. But as it turns out, there is a rational explanation it's a boy in the walls it's still creepy but yeah that is my thesis about how horror should be uh, i know i kind of took the floor there for a minute but <laughs> what do you think
0: what i'm mostly thinking is that you should be able to do both like the idea we were talking about earlier about like metaphor being horror's like strong suit for like social ills That is where you get to, for instance, talk about how police are a force for evil. Like, that scene in Get Out where you see the cop lights and your heart stops, Uh, there's a relief after that, but the implication there is, like, the cops are an evil force that are coming in, and we all know how that story ends, you know? Right. So, you can still discuss real-world problems in these movies, but I think horror allows for the irrational, subjective way we view the world to be shown on screen in a way that no other genre really allows. Like, I need that outlet where I don't think life is logical, or at least the way I experience the world is logical, and I don't see cinematic language, like, reflecting that (laughs) as much as it does in the genre. Like, so many movies are so constrained by having logical explanations for everything like people's obsession with plot holes over the past decade just melted my brain and i really just want there to be this one pocket of filmmaking where you can view the world through that subjective loosey-goosey lens because that just really does feel true to human experience whether or not that has led to like other evils <laughs> and like made way for um you know pseudoscience and everything else it really does feel like there's like one little protected pocket where you're allowed to be illogical and i want to hold on to that so tightly <laughs> before <laughs> it disappears but you know in this instance for this movie in particular i think it gets away with it in a few ways most of all because it does the work as if it is a supernatural story like there's a speech the security guard gives to the main character where she's investigating the murder of this teenager who was murdered by uh we don't know who originally. <laughs> yeah. Is that worth spoiling? I don't know. Uh,
1: I'll be honest. I had forgotten. I remembered the ending and I remembered Eugene fighting someone, but mm-hmm. I had a hard time remembering who it was that he was fighting. So I don't know. Let that be the one surprise, maybe.
0: You're right. So, she was murdered, though, and she was like a girl who was not protected by the world. She was in this sort of halfway house where, like, Christians were, like, holding her down and, like, her only joy in life was sneaking a little pot on the side every now and then. And, you know, life did not protect her and she was stabbed dozens of times to death. And her murder was never solved because she was just some, like, trashy nothing that no one cared about. And the security guard says, okay, if these ghosts are reaching out to you don't you see like a parallel of yourself and this person? Don't you want to get justice for her? And like, that's the movie doing the legwork for the supernatural angle. It's like, that is yeah. what the horror movie is supposed to satisfy is that kind of metaphor. So once it lays that groundwork, then it already allowed itself to like, pull back and be like actually there's a much more logical explanation to this and we're still going to give you all the payoffs but it'll be a lot more surprising if we can uh, reveal that this isn't ghosts and that this other layer of reality going on so even that feels like a break in reality so I don't know I, I think this movie does enough legwork where it didn't annoy me but then I watched something like unfriended 2: the dark web that's where this annoyed me like the first unfriended film is a computer ghost and yeah the ghost is getting its revenge and it makes no goddamn sense that this ghost would haunt a Skype call but that's the vehicle that allows this like metaphor about online bullying to play out as like a sort of morality play where you watch all these like shithead teens get punished for their past evils
1: <laughs> yeah barely a metaphor
0: yeah uh, but
1: delightfully so
0: <laughs> right it's great and then unfriended 2 the dark web goes out of its way to normalize that weird impulse where it's like oh actually there's just a bunch of hackers that are tormenting you from off screen and like are using security cams and it like logically explains how this like skype call is going to hell and how these people's lives are being ruined and it just zapped the magic out of the movie to me and it was like huh. It made it more respectable, I think, in a lot of people's eyes, and that movie got better reviews and be like, oh, actually, this is the smart one. I feel like Searching is another film that got the same thing, where I was more pulled into the haunted Zoom meeting film host that came out a couple weeks ago that went back until, it's just a computer ghost. I was like, yes, back to the basics. Uh, I just don't want that to disappear, I guess is my feeling.
1: I'll freely admit that the world I'm advocating for... (laughs) is potentially one in which there are a lot more boring movies than there are now. (laughs) Uh, I definitely don't think that everything – like. I just want there to be both. I want there to be a, a rational explanation some of the time where people who start the film thinking that there is some sort of mystical reason for the things that are happening to them, come to find out that there is a completely rational and reasonable one. Maybe not necessarily dark web hackers, and also maybe not that belabored. But, you know, just like, oh, maybe it's not a witch's curse. Maybe it is a serial killer. Maybe you're all being killed in a certain order, not because you're of a revenge curse, but because whoever the serial killer is has some sort of obsession or fascination. I guess I don't really foresee a lot of conclusions or climaxes that aren't you thought it was this but actually it was a serial killer i guess that is what i'm advocating for more of <laughs> but that's the challenge i you know just because i can't conceive of it myself doesn't mean i don't want to see it i want to see something that i can't conceive of myself and learning that reagan is possessed by a ghost rather than oh she actually just has a mental illness And this is a harrowing story about a single mother's realization that she's losing her daughter. And it's scary because it could happen to you. It could happen to your mom. I just want that to happen sometimes. I get that. I think that there's a way to do it in a creative way. It's not a surprise whenever it's a ghost anymore. It's a surprise when it's not. And I want to be surprised more, I guess.
0: And I think the movie needs that, like, it's not a surprise that it's a ghost foundation to pull the rug from under you. Like, it's playing with, like, old Dark House, like, Haunted House movies. The camera work is doing this sort of overactive, like, dead alive, evil dead, kind of, like, low from the ground, wide-angle lens camera work to, like, make you feel like there is something supernatural going on. It's really playing into that expectation, so you think you know where it's going. So that when Eugene climbs out of the wall, <laughs> you're like, "What the fuck is that?" I did not expect that, but I, I do think it's worth talking about too. Like one of the reasons it works here as well is that Eugene is not a reasonable explanation. Eugene is <laughs> in himself a supernatural character, even if like it's not a ghost, you know. Okay, I,
1: I accept the <laughs> I accept that reasoning. <laughs> it's a plausible explanation, but not necessarily a, a one that you would expect.
0: How would you describe Eugene? I want to hear your like description of what and who he is. Uh, Eugene
1: looks like John Glover's character in uh, At the Mouth of Madness, <laughs> but wearing what barely constitutes clothing because it's so ratty at this point, completely pale like Beetlejuice, white shock of hair, living in the walls, getting little bits of food And watching old television shows. He's great. I thought he looked
0: a lot like Wayne Coyne. That was my uh, visual reference (laughs) point, I think.
1: (laughs) I get that. I can see it.
0: And he's also supernaturally gifted at machines, right? Like he can like rewire things.
1: Yeah. But you know, that's a thing that (laughs) that people have. That's not outside of the realm of plausibility. Some people have a natural aptitude not that i'm trying to defend my point of view that this is a completely realistic movie
0: (laughs) no no no, and i don't think it's trying to be either like i think it's just trying to subvert your expectations
1: and successfully
0: yeah for sure and i think it works in his case because you know you expected a ghost and you get this completely other thing and he is like a whole new thing to like deal with once he (laughs) arrives you're like what is that and you're like try to gather as many details as you can and then I think another way it subverts your expectations is, like, who are the villains in this film? Because it presents a lot of, like, scary-looking men, from her, like, silent stepfather figure to, like, this creepy guy next door who was around when the team was murdered, so maybe he's a suspect. And then Eugene himself, you know, he's an anomaly, so he's scary at first glance as well. But the way it subverts that is, like, the people who look, like, nice, kindly neighborly men are actually the real threats. So the movie yeah. has this whole other layer of like thematic exploration where that's like subverting your expectations as well. And you get all those like horror cues every time you see a creepy man. It's like this like scary ominous music so you don't suspect that the nice guy next door who's like well loved in the community is actually the terror. Yeah. So it does a lot of work to justify all of these like subversions I think. And it's just funny too. Like I think that's part of the reason it gets away with it is that it's a successful comedy
1: yeah it, this would not work as well were it not funny if it's not funny you just get the boy
0: <laughs> well the boy was funny in its own special way
1: yeah apparently it's the doll is possessed in brahms the boy too which i have not seen mm. there are people in this world that that was the last movie they saw before quarantine
0: <laughs> god bless
1: you people what was yours I want to say it was Portrait of a Lady on Fire, but technically that's not true because I saw Emma three days later. So it was Emma.
0: I loved Emma. I know you didn't like it. I liked
1: it. It's just, you know, Emma is not the best Jane Austen novel. Emma herself is not the most likable Austen character.
0: Yeah. I like that she's not likable. (laughs) I actually would extend that to this character too. I love that the main character in Housebound is allowed to be A rude slob who sits around his sweatpants and like bullies her mother like (laughs) takes over her tv and eats like a portion of her meatloaf that she wasn't supposed to and everything else like i like that she's allowed to be a rude woman because that's another thing we don't get to see enough of in movies
1: she is fully a dick she is a full-on dick and it's great because that gives her somewhere to build to you know like when she she finds her old tap dancing shoes it's surprisingly earnest for what is mostly a horror film, mostly a thriller, occasionally a comedy. I like the surprisingly earnest moments that she has with her mother, but especially, you know, she watches the old video or finds the old photo and then finds her old shoes and starts tap dancing. And like, it establishes that Eugene has always been there and he remembers her as this little girl when you learn that later. Although that's um, also creepy.
0: Yeah. And as soon as she's caught having this like sweet private moment with her tap shoes uh she's caught by her stepfather who's just like asking for a hand in the basement fixing something that she broke uh then she like immediately (laughs) shuts off that sweet side and she's like fuck you what do you want what are you doing in my room (laughs) i love that prickliness in a female character because you really don't get to see enough of that
1: no you don't i mean this is a movie about a woman on the verge Mm -hmm. a couple of women on the verge really
0: you're including the mother in there as well yeah Making her late night calls to coast to coast on the on, uh, on the only home phone.
1: Let's talk about the ghosts living in her house. Yeah, that woman is on the edge.
0: <laughs> the last movie I saw in the theater was Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss, oh. which I feel like takes a lot of those boxes as well. Where it's like it's got the metaphor about domestic abuse. It is a logical explanation on how that's happening, even though it still feels like this like supernatural break because it has that like futuristic sci-fi like near future bent to it.
1: I'm totally on board for it.
0: So, yeah, I I personally don't want to see this all the time. <laughs> I, I think the more it happens, the more annoyed I'll be by it. Where, like, it's teasing this, like, supernatural thing, but it doesn't commit. That will bother me. But I feel like this movie gets away with it because it lays a lot of groundwork, and it's using that to specifically pull the rug from under you and surprise you. And, you know, we watch a lot of horror films... So we're used to not being surprised. So when a movie can like actually shock you with like a twist, it feels great. It's exhilarating to be like taken off guard, I think.
1: Yeah. I definitely would say like of the horror movies that I found really praiseworthy of the past, I don't know, five, six years are not the ones that are necessarily the scariest, but the ones that are just have something original on offer.
0: Can you think of a specific movie that the illogic of it bothers you? Or is it more a symptom of there just being so many films where like logic is sort of loosey goosey and like debatable?
1: Um, I'm gonna say that just in general, it's just, I just want to see more of like the scientific method being used to solve problems that might be supernatural in nature, and turns out no, it's not a witch; it's an axe murderer you know, you and I are are not necessarily always on the same page about like how much we need a film to be rational.
0: I really don't care about rational thought in film. Like I I wish we could move away from that. I want to go back to the nineteen (laughs) hundreds Melias like trip to the moon.
1: Yeah. Honestly, I'd love that too. (laughs) I I don't want to be like a stop having fun guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I definitely We talk about Suspiria all the time as a movie that completely functions on nothing but dream logic. And I love it. Phenomena also doesn't make a lick of sense. And it's my favorite.
0: Mm -hmm. I think style over substance is my sweet spot with all art. Maybe Uh, (laughs) I'm totally okay with it. I was just reading this um, Joel Schumacher quote again today (laughs) with like Minnie driver was on set for Phantom of the Opera, which is like a terrible film. (laughs) And she was saying that another actress was complaining about her, being over the top, like during filming and Joel Schumacher looked up from his uh, paper. He was reading, and he said, Oh honey, no one ever paid to see under the top. And I feel like that really like sums it up for me. Like I want everything to be excessive <laughs> because that's like what I'm here for.
1: You know, I live there with you a lot of the time, <laughs> you know, where I will frequently revisit and go back and and continue to watch a television show that is completely bonkers. I'm thinking specifically about Riverdale, in which at one point, you know, Chad Michael Murray, while dressed as evil can evil, tries to escape from his cult in a homemade rocket. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't need this to make a lick of sense. Go for it. Attacked by a bear? Sure. Drown a doll because you think it's possessed by a triplet that you consumed in the womb? Why the hell not? But I don't know. There's also the rational part of me. The Vulcan side that does want a story that's pr- logical. And I get that it would be a pretty boring world if everything was like that. I just, I think there's room enough for everything.
0: Yeah. And this movie's very good. So it's a very good case for that argument, I think. Yeah. And we'll be doing Pedro Almodovar on the next episode. And I think that's a good mix of his movies have this like sort of emotional swell to them, but also are not fantastical. Like they look intensely artificial and they have these like sort of like contrived soap opera plots, but they are like logically explained as well. So that's a good like middle ground. I think too. That's our next episode is me and Han are going to be talking about some emotivar movies. And we'll be back with that episode next week. Check out swampflix.com for other writings and thoughts in between. And I assume that we'll come back to this, like, logical versus irrational discussion many times in the future. Uh, yeah, it's, it's my lifetime passion project. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, and I just love talking, so it's great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> my whole problem is I always agree with whoever spoke last.
0: <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye.